Well, good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and I would love to invite you to open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14. Um, you can find that if you're looking in one of the blue church Bibles on page uh, 874. And let me invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 14. Is that what I said? Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 12. The context here is that Jesus is, has been invited to a party. And he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have brought, bought five yoke of oxen and I, must, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, would you give us ears to hear uh, your welcome to us, uh, your instruction to us. And would you help us, God, to be not only hearers of your word, but doers. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, please. We're continuing our series, Let's Eat, looking at what the Bible has to say about food. And this morning, we're looking at one of my favorite passages. I love this passage. Uh, it's all about hospitality. Now, it occurs to me that the word hospitality is a word that we are very familiar with, but I don't think we have any idea what it means anymore. Uh, if you put into Google the name of any city and then hospitality. So, for example, if you put in Ladera Ranch hospitality, what you get is pages upon pages upon pages of hotels. Uh, I was typing the word hospitality into Google this morning, and you know how it like pre-fills things? One of the pre-filled things that came up said hospitality dental. Now, <laughs> no offense to any dentists who may be present, but I don't really, when I think of the word hospitality, I don't think of the dentist. Um, seems kind of the opposite of hospitality to me. Um, 
So to try to recapture a little bit of what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about hospitality, I want you to imagine with me a woman. Um, a woman any time from the 2nd century A.D. until, say, the 16th century A.D. And um, imagine this woman lives anywhere broadly in the area of the Mediterranean. Uh, she, this could be as far east as Palestine or as far west as uh, modern-day Spain. This could be as far south as northern Africa, Morocco, or this could be as far uh, north as Germany, or even England or Scotland. And uh, this woman, because of whatever circumstance in her life, uh, she needs to travel. She needs to go somewhere. That woman would spend her day walking and scanning the horizon, and she would be hoping to find somewhere on the horizon not a Hilton Garden Inn, and certainly not Hospitality Dental, but she would be hoping to find a church. Uh, it may be a large Gothic cathedral, or it might be a small um, house church. It might be a monastery, it might be a very elaborate, or it might be a very simple place. But a traveler anywhere in the Christian known kind of world at that time that's a huge swath of history, right? 1,200 years or so, 1,400 years. They would be looking for a church. Why? Because a traveler in that time knew that no matter what else they thought of the church, they could be sure to find an open door, a warm meal, and a place to spend the night. A traveler in the ancient world uh, was vulnerable, and they could find safety. The, in the ancient world, in the medieval world, the world was looking for the church. In the doors of the church, uh, they would find dignity, they would find respect, they would find care, and they would find a full belly. Whatever a person might know, in that time, they could be sure that the purpose of the church was to be a light in the darkness, the traveler was looking for us. And what she found was personal care on the one hand, very individual care. But on the other hand, what, what the church provided through its practice, what the church considered the moral vocation of hospitality. It provided a service not just to the individual travelers, but ultimately to society at large. It's no um, mistake that in any city you go into, there is a hospital named St. Mark's or St. Luke, or Methodist Hospital, or Presbyterian Hospital, or Baptist Hospital. Uh, it is no mistake that the earliest schools in North America were all founded as uh, institutions to train ministers, right? It was the practice of the church to care for individuals, and that grew into the practice of educating the young and caring for the sick. Through hospitality, the church embodied the love of God in their time. And because they loved people in tangible ways, the gospel became uh, beautiful to people. They were looking for us. Now, to me, when I just, most of what I just said, I plagiarized from a guy named Greg Thompson that you can find on the internet. Um, but that is an incredibly inspiring and beautiful um, picture of hospitality. And yet when I say that, I say it with sort of a, a heavy heart. 
because while it was the case that they were looking for God, or sorry, that people looking for a home were looking for us, were looking for the church, our brothers and sisters. In our day, we know that people are no longer looking for us. People are no longer coming to the church to find a place of welcome. And yet, uh, it's heartbreaking because our neighbors are still wandering. Our neighbors are still searching for success, for meaning. We're surrounded by people who are struggling to pay the bills, who are struggling to parent, to know um, what is right and wrong, and to know how to raise their kids. Our neighbors are still struggling. They're still searching. There is an epidemic of loneliness in the culture that we find ourselves in, and yet they are no longer looking for us. And it's also heartbreaking because I think we are no longer looking for them either. They are no longer looking for us, and we are no longer looking for them. And so against that backdrop, I want to invite you to look at this passage with me in Luke 14. Because what we see here is this beautiful and compelling vision for what we ought to be, the church in the world. In Luke 14, Jesus is at this party. And it's a really bad party because it says, if we had read the whole chapter, that the Pharisees have invited Jesus to this feet, this party, and they are there watching him. Can you imagine? They're, they're, they're inviting Jesus to a party, but it's a trap, and they're sure that they're going to catch him. And at this party, everybody is falling all over each other to, uh, to get the places of honor. And Jesus is just not impressed. Be careful what you do if you invite Jesus to your party because he might just show up and tell a parable. And without you even knowing it, he's like kind of throwing you under the bus. And he tells this parable about another feast. And he tells a story about a feast that is literally the meaning of the world. We're going to see this in two weeks when we finish this series. But Jesus is kind of giving us this foretaste. And what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is a feast and that all of human history is moving towards a party that's about being invited into God's house. This is what Jesus is telling us in this passage. God is preparing to throw a party and he's inviting us and he wants us to bring our friends. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hospitality. I love this passage. I have way more material here than I'm going to be able to get through in the next hour or so. <laughs> um, so we're just going to kind of see how things go. I love this passage and I hope that you get a sense for just the beauty of this passage as we see it together. Um, so what I really want to do is I want to, I want to explain what this parable means, what Jesus is saying to us, and then I want to give us hopefully some very practical steps that we can take as individuals and as a church to actually recover this practice of hospitality in our time. So what does the passage mean? What does the parable mean? Well, at its most obvious level, it's saying that the kingdom of God is a feast. Now, I don't know how that strikes you if you've been here the last several weeks. Hopefully that doesn't sound like a earth-shattering statement at this point. Um, but whatever your experience of the church may have been, Growing up or now, um, Jesus wants you to know that the kingdom of God is a feast. It's a celebration. It's a party. Jesus is telling us that God is a gracious host who is throwing a lavish party, and he wants you to come. This is so clear throughout the Bible. 
After bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt, God takes them through the wilderness for 40 years where he provides day after day after day. He provides food from heaven for his people. In the Old Testament, Rahab is commended for sheltering the spies, giving hospitality to the spies in Canaan. The Psalms speak of God as a host. Uh, They declare that God can spread a table in the wilderness and they compare the kingdom of God to the banqueting house of a great king. The parable of the prodigal sons is the story of God as the father who goes out to both of his sons that have turned their back on him and welcome them and urging them to come, in, to come into a feast, a party, a lavish event. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast where he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Jesus fed 4,000 people. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Wherever he was going, he was eating and drinking. Jesus was even called a partier and a glutton by his critics. The kingdom of God is a feast. And he wants us to invite others. The whole Bible tells us this. This is the character of God. He is a host. In this passage, God is almost manic with, you know, my house must be filled. He wants us to bring our friends. Hospitality is extending to strangers the kind of love that is normally reserved for friends or for family. That's what this passage is telling us. But it's also showing us this, that not only is God throwing a feast, but also God wants us to bring people. He says, once you've been welcomed into the feast, there's like a revolving door and you get to eat, I guess, but then you get sent back in. And he says, bring your friends, bring others Now, many of us will think, well, I could never explain the gospel to anyone. I could never kind of defend the intellectual. What if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? You know, the fascinating thing in the New Testament is that there's there's almost never a place where somebody in the New Testament, a Christian in the New Testament, sits an unbeliever down and tries to articulate the gospel to them. What almost happens is that there is something going on that is uncomprehensible to an unbeliever who says, what is going on? These people that don't get along anywhere get along together in the church. These people who are stingy regularly are generous in the church. There is some new reality that is going on. And an unbeliever comes and says, what in the world is going on? And the only way to make those actions understandable is to then explain the the gospel, to explain who Jesus is. That's the way evangelism works in the New Testament. I have a friend named Travis who, I, I mean, I didn't ask this. They just, he just posted this on Facebook this week. He said, hospitality literally saved my life. It was loving Christians opening their home and dinner table to me, to my angry, foul-mouthed, cynical self that caused me not just to hear the gospel, but to want it to be true. And I can tell you story after story after story, exactly like that. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't have to have any of the answers. All you have to do is invite somebody to dinner. Jesus also says, this is incredible, um, in this passage, the servants have gone out. He says, go to the highways and lanes and, and invite people to come in. And uh, the servants report back, we've done that, and still there's more room. And he 
the king says, go out to the highways and hedges, the, the King James used to say, the highways and byways, and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word compel is a Greek word, anakatso. Do you know what anagatso means? It means compel. <laughs> okay? It's tricky, right? It means force them to come in. Okay, what is Jesus saying here? What he's saying, I mean, uh, he's acknowledging that um, people don't want to come into the kingdom of God. And, and like, I tried and they didn't say, they didn't come. Like, it's not an, it's not an excuse. <laughs> Um, at the very least, Jesus is saying this, I want you to invite people to the feast of knowing me. I want you to invite people who are reluctant, who are resistant. I want you to be persistent. I want you to be thoughtful. I want you to be caring. I don't want you to give up. Most of you, many of you know, in our community groups right now, we are uh, not coincidentally going through a uh, book called The Art of Neighboring. And every week we're kind of making a... Uh, a commitment to make a small step in loving our neighbors. And it was great this week in community groups to kind of just listen and hear um, how people had loved their neighbors this week. And yet, there, you know, there, there's so many great success stories and there's so many stories, and I'm not calling anybody out here, but of, well, I asked once and I knocked on the door and no one was home. And so keep knocking, right? Compel them to come in, Jesus says. And then he says, um, and we can't miss this. I'm going to say more about this in a minute. But he says, bring people in who don't look anything like you. Who don't share your values. When he's saying, you know, the highways and byways is not like a pleasant place to go for a walk. He's saying, like, beat the bushes and get the people that live in the bushes to come in to the feast. If the proper, respectable people aren't going to come into the kingdom of God, then bring those that you would never find yourself talking to in the neighborhood, you know, block party. Jesus is talking about not just hanging out with your friends. The defining characteristic of the kingdom of God is that people get along in the church who would never associate with one another outside of it. Rich or poor, young or old, black or white, Republican or Democrat, Democrat we don't just endure one another, but we love one another. And when that happens, you know that God is at work. Hospitality is making room for others. Making room for others. That's what the passage says. Okay, now let's just get practical. What does this actually look like? And what I want to do is um, lay out maybe four, I don't know, steps or four levels of hospitality here for you. And I don't know where you're going to find yourself here, but there is, there is sort of a next step for us all to take, no matter what, no matter, you know, you might be Martha Stewart, or you might feel like you can never welcome anyone into your home, and there's something for you to do here. And the first thing is this, um, level one, step one is commit to eating dinner with your family at home. I know I've mentioned this several times over the last couple of weeks. Um, just sociologically, this is the simplest, most obvious thing you can do for your children. Uh, I know that we're not all parents here. But, um, you know, we live in a place where we sacrifice so much for the well-being of our children. At least that's what we tell them to do. Or we tell ourselves. 
And so much of the time, family dinner gets sacrificed and we're eating fast food in the back of the car as we shuffle our kids from one activity to the next. And yet the best thing we can do for our children is eat dinner at home with them. To make it a regular place, not just to consume calories, but to talk about the day. What was good? What was bad? What scared you? What was frustrating? It's a place where we are known and we can bring our thoughts and we can experience love. If we don't start here, if we don't start here, um, my belief is that if we don't start by making it a practice of regularly eating dinner at home, at our houses with our families, that whatever we do to invite others into our home will be more entertainment than hospitality. Okay, this is just step one. Um, an acquaintance of mine, a pastor named Ray Cortez, I heard him say that as a kid, he said, I grew up in a house with nine people in it, and my dad was an executive, and he worked long hours, and he would get home late, and we were all playing sports, but it was my mom's belief that our family would eat dinner together, and so oftentimes we ate dinner at nine o'clock at night. Sometimes he said my mom would wake us up and bring us to the dinner table because dad was home and we were going to sit down and eat together. We can tell ourselves that we don't have time, but the reality is we haven't made it a priority. We can find time for anything that we make a priority. (coughs) Secondly, second step, invite your Christian friends into your home. You know what the biggest crisis in the early church was? Uh, If you've ever read the book of Acts or the book of Galatians or some parts of 1 Corinthians, you read these things that are really strange where there's arguments over the practice of circumcision. And like, do Christians need to be circumcised in order to be real Christians? You can, what in the world? Why are they talking about this, right? Or there's these debates about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. And is that something Christians should do? And we're like, this must mean something, but I don't know. You know what the whole debate is about? It's about this. It's about can we eat together? It's about can Christians eat together with other Christians? Um, We have made it our ambition, our family. Actually, I think I should probably take ownership and say I have made it my ambition that everyone who is a part of our church has been in our house. I, my wife hates this sometimes. And I know as soon as I say that, there's probably like three or four people that are going, we've never been in your house. Don't worry, it's coming like today. <laughs> I warned Ashley this morning, this would be a really good in, in day to invite some more people over for dinner. I love you. I want you in my house. I want to eat with you. I want to know you. I want to care for you. And I want to experience fellowship together as we eat together. Um, that has been our ambition. Interesting thing in the New Testament, um, there are two places that the New Testament talks about the qualifications for eldership in the church. What, what must a person be in order to be an elder in the church? And of course it says things like you must be of sound doctrine, you must be able to teach, you must be respectable and sober-minded. But both places in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1.8, they both mention that an elder must be hospitable. An elder must be a person who practices hospitality. Why is that? Well, a leader in the church has got to set an example. 
and a leader in the church has got to, you know, hospitality never comes at a convenient time. Entertainment happens on your schedule. Hospitality happens when there's a need a lot of the time. And an elder has got to be a person who is willing to make time. It's going to cost money. Um, it's going to cost, you know, your personal comfort, your space. An elder's got to be a person who opens up their home to welcome people in. Um, just some practical things. This does not have to be fancy. Uh, this does not have to be elaborate. Your house does not have to be clean. In fact, it's probably better if it's not. You know what happens when, um, when somebody comes into a house for the first time for a, a big meal and it's, you know, you walk in the front door and everything is just perfect and it's clean and it smells wonderful and it's beautiful. The family arriving thinks, my house never looks like this. Well, guess what? The house that you're in never looks like that either. It didn't look like that eight minutes beforehand, okay? Our house is never clean except when you come over. And so maybe sometimes we should just not vacuum because it's when we see each other's vulnerability and, you know, stuff that relationships are built. That people who look at somebody and say, I can never be friends with you, you've got it all together. And then you go into their home and you see, oh, maybe we could, maybe we could actually be friends. This does not have to be fancy. This doesn't have to be expensive. This doesn't have to involve having 25, 50, 100 people in your home. This can be as simple as going to Costco and buying a lasagna and putting it in the oven and eating it on your laps on the couch together. You don't need a big house. You don't need a... It, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, let me just say, if this is your gift, feel free to, you know smoke briskets and serve beer and wine and invite the pastor over and um, if that's your thing have at it third step okay number one have dinner at home with your family number two invite your christian friends into your home number three invite your non-christian neighbors into your home and when i say into your home i mean into your home it's one thing to hang out in the like driveway with people it's a completely different thing to invite somebody into your mess <laughs> or you're not so much of a mess but into your place of safety and sanctuary um your neighbors your neighbors the people who live next to you Invite them into your home. Again, in our community groups, we're talking about, um, we're doing this thing where you, and some of you know this, but do you know the names of the people in the eight houses closest to your house? Um, we, we use the word neighbor for, you know, the guy in line behind me at Starbucks or whatever, but your actual neighbors, invite them into your home. And we're finding this um, in, in our community groups that with a, just a little bit of intentionality and with the encouragement of, the, of your community group and the support of your community group, we've seen people just inc do incredible things in terms of just taking steps to love their neighbors in the past couple of weeks. Just a little bit of effort, just a little bit of intentionality results in big steps forward. Um, again, what do you think might happen when you invite a non-Christian? And I'm not assuming everybody here is a believer in Jesus, by the way. But what do you think might happen if you invite somebody into your home who says, I hate the Bible, I loathe Christians, 
and you invite them into your home and you sit down and eat and you don't try to share the gospel with them. You just get to know them. You love them. You serve them food. Well, let me tell you what might happen. There's a woman named, there is a woman named Rosario Butterfield who was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in gay and lesbian studies. By her own admission, she was a radical feminist progressive and um, hated Christianity. Um, she said this, she said, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and my wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, in particular, were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end the conversation rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. <laughs> okay, that's what she thought. And then she gets an invitation. She was doing research on a book, and she, gets, uh, she wrote this scathing critique of, of Christianity in a, in a newspaper, and she got all kinds of hate mail, but she got the le a letter in response from a local pastor named Ken. And uh, this is what she wrote. She said, Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians who mocked me on gay, the, the Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell. This is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. And so when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife and I became friends. They entered into my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Did you hear what she said? I hated Christians. I loathed the Bible. And then somebody invited me to dinner. And it changed everything. A simple invitation to dinner changed everything. And again, I could tell you story after story after story of the ways that has happened. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they might find... They may find the Bible repulsive. If they knew what you really believed, they would think you are an outdated dinosaur. But when we practice hospitality, love becomes tangible. When we practice hospitality, our theoretical love for people costs us something and it cannot be denied. Every single person longs to be known and loved and welcomed. And when you Welcome your neighbors in. They experience the welcome of God himself. When we open our lives, when we open our homes to people, they open their lives to us. Okay, I got to keep, uh, keep moving. Um, number four. Number four. Biblical hospitality demands that we are hospitable to people that we don't um, know, that we don't, that don't look like us, that don't believe what we believe. 
that don't agree with us and that cannot repay us. Jesus says in uh, verse 12 here, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Biblical hospitality is not entertainment. Biblical hospitality is not hanging out with our friends. It's welcoming people in Jesus' name. It's extending the kind of love to strangers that we typically reserve for family and for friends. During World War II, uh, the little town of Platt, North Platte, Nebraska, uh, it's a town of 12,000 people, it's a little town in Nebraska, and uh, there's a train line that comes right through North Platte, Nebraska. And one day they heard that a train full of soldiers from Nebraska was going to be stopping in Platte. And so the whole town went out with food to feed these soldiers that were on their way to war. And the train arrived and there was nobody on it from Nebraska. And there they were and they said, well, we've got all of this food. We might as well feed the soldiers that are here. And that began a practice that they continued day after day and they fed train after train. They made a commitment to serve every single train of, pass- of soldiers that came through uh, the town. Some days as many as 20 trains. A little town, 12,000 people, North Platte, Nebraska, fed six million soldiers during World War II. And every soldier that got off the train got a warm meal. <laughs> I don't know why this jokes me up. <laughs> and a dance with a Nebraska girl. <laughs> but see, that's hospitality. It's not just, I will give you some calories. It's we're extending to, stra- to strangers the love that is typically reserved for family and friends. Um... I was reading something and it quoted an article from The Onion. You know The Onion is a satirical newspaper. Um, This is a great Onion headline. Local church full of brainwashed idiots feeds towns poor every single week. What are they saying? Um, They're saying we live in 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 a culture that does not appreciate Christians. Uh, to various degrees, some people think we're complete brainwashed idiots, right? And yet when we feed people, when we welcome people into our homes, you cannot deny the tangible expression of love. Biblical hospitality demands that we love those who can never repay us. Now, I know that most of you are thinking, but what if I get ripped off, right? Um, I mean, what? Okay. You know the story of Les Mis, Les Miserables. You know the whole beautiful story of Les Miserables turns on an act of Christian hospitality. Jean Valjean, the criminal, cannot find a place to spend the night because he's a criminal. And a Christian pastor opens his door and welcomes him in and says to him, come in, sir, for you are weary. And the night is cold out there. Though our lives are very humble, what we have to share, uh, what we have, we have to share. There's wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. And so he brings Jean Valjean in. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean um, steals 
the pastor's china and takes off. And when the police catch him and bring him back, the pastor looks him in the eye and says, Jean Valjean, I'm very angry at you. I gave you the candlesticks as well. These are very valuable. You could get a lot of money for these. You should take them with you. And when the police leave, the pastor looks at Jean Valjean in the eye and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, I have ransomed you from evil. Your life now belongs to God. That is biblical hospitality. That, if you're asking the question, what if I get ripped off, you're not paying any attention because you're on the wrong side of that equation. You have been ripping God off for years. Are you kidding me? I'm not advocating being foolish, putting yourself in danger, but what if I get ripped off? Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 and following. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's the worst that can happen? It's just money. (laughs) And we've been ripping God off our whole lives. Okay, let me finish with two. How, okay, that's great, right? You could be even be here going, yeah, that sounds great, but how are you ever going to get that to come out of you? Um, there are two things that have to happen if you are ever going to become a hospitable person. And the first is this. We have to commit to leaving margin in our times for other people. And to demonstrate that, let me, ex- let me give you an example of how I utterly failed at this this week. <laughs> uh, earlier this week, um, I'm, you know, I'm on my way home, and my wife is getting ready to put all of the kids in the car to go drop one of our kids off for soccer practice. And I send her a text and say, hey, you, I'll get home in time. I'll take him to soccer. You don't have to worry about it. And then I leave late, and then there's traffic on Ortega Highway, and I'm texting my wife, voice text only, of course, saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I'm going to be a few minutes late. And as I'm pulling into our house, she's driving out the other direction with a not super excited look on her face and all the kids in the car. And I get look at my text and she says, sorry, I don't always keep my phone on me. And I'm like, well, why don't you always keep your phone on you? There is no way to love people when every single minute is scheduled out to the maximum. It's just not possible. Things go wrong. And if we don't have margin in our time, in our days, we will never become hospitable people. I know we're busy. I know we've got jobs and kids and all of these things. I get it. I get it. I get it. But Jesus doesn't say, if you want, practice hospitality. He doesn't say practice hospitality unless you're busy or unless you're an introvert or unless you don't feel like it or unless it's not convenient. The reality is that in South Orange County, we have beautiful homes that we never invite anybody into. And we have gorgeous kitchens, but we eat fast food all of the time. And we justify buying those beautiful homes because we say we love to entertain, but you know, once or twice a year on special occasions, we invite people, and that is not hospitality. That is not hospitality. I know... 
It's hard, but if we commit to doing this together, we can take baby steps, we can love people. Practicing hospitality is not good advice. It is who we are as God's people. But finally, you will never practice hospitality unless you see who you are in this passage. Because though I've said that, that you are, we are these servants who Jesus says, go out and invite them and compel them to come in. It's only because we have been on the other end of that equation to begin with. And let me just put it as simply as this. Do you, I mean, if you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian because you chose to follow Jesus? Um, you know, um, many of us think, well, I'm a Christian because I you know, studied, I investigated, I made a decision to follow Jesus. Um, there's a passage in uh, Revelation 3.20 that is often misquoted. <laughs> that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And often we talk about it that uh, you, you've heard people say that there is, a, there, there is only a doorknob on the inside of that door. And you must open the door and let Jesus into your heart. But the reality is that when uh, Jesus begins knocking on the door, I sat down on the couch and turned up the volume and grabbed another TV, another beer, um, and just tried to drown out the noise of Jesus knocking on the door of my heart. And so the Holy Spirit goes into the basement and sets the house on fire. <laughs> and I get up and open the door and run out, and Jesus is right there waiting to catch me. If you are a Christian, it's not because you chose Jesus. It's because before the foundations of the world were laid, God has been scheming, planning, waiting, compelling you bringing you to the point where when you finally choose Jesus, it feels like it was your choice, but he has been making it so utterly compelling that you could choose to do nothing other. God feeds you. God welcomes you into his house, and he now sends you out to bring others to the feast of knowing Jesus. They are not looking for us. Are we looking for them? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this parable, these words, this beautiful picture of the way that your kingdom operates. And Jesus, I pray that uh, we would be people who don't just hear your word, but do it. Would you move us with what you gave up in order to welcome us into your house? Jesus, you left your home in heaven. You left the riches of your kingdom in order to come to earth, uh, it cost you everything. You were crucified outside the city gate. You were cast out in order to bring us in. And so Jesus, would you help us um, to respond to you? Would you help us to run to you? And would you help us to bring others to the feast? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.